Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. In 1936, Son Ki Chung won a marathon. And not just any marathon. He won the marathon in that year's Berlin Olympics. He ran just over 26.2 miles in just under 2 hours and 30 minutes, making him the first Olympian to run the marathon in less than an hour and a half. It was an Olympic record. He got a gold medal. And during his awards ceremony, Son refused to acknowledge the anthem that was played for him. He didn't salute. He didn't put his hand over his heart. He didn't even smile. The anthem played and Son kept still with his gold medal around his neck. That's because Son Ki Chung wasn't really competing on behalf of his country, and that anthem wasn't the anthem of a country he especially cared for. He was born in Korea, in a town in modern North Korea. However, his running uniform didn't sport a Korean flag, and no Korean flags were flying in Berlin that day. Instead, he'd been forced to represent Japan. And, even though he'd run the marathon faster than any other Olympic runner, Son Ki-chung's name didn't go into the record books. He'd been forced to compete as Son Ki-te. Like other Koreans during Japanese occupation, he had to take a Japanese name in place of the name he was born with. During those Olympics, he was briefly one of the most famous people on planet Earth, but no one knew what he really called himself. So it's a small wonder that when the Japanese anthem played throughout that Berlin stadium in 1936, Son Ki-chung didn't give authoritarianism the acknowledgement it craved. Imperial Japanese and Nazi flags flew above him, and he protested with stillness and silence. That was in 1936, and Japan's occupation of Korea stretches back much farther than that. Now, if you're expecting a story about an invasion with guns blazing and sieges and you know dramatic last stands and all that, this is not that kind of story. The Japanese Empire's acquisition of Korea was more gradual, and this is essentially the story of a powerful country showing up to a less powerful country with a gun in one hand and an unfair treaty in the other, and making that less powerful country choose. Back in the 1870s, European powers and the United States were establishing spheres of influence in East Asia. These were on the Chinese coast, these were in Southeast Asia, these were in the Philippines, and they were colonies in all but name. At the same time, Japan was undergoing its own period of contact with the outside world and modernization. Japan didn't want to meet the same fate as its neighbors, so instead it overhauled its entire government, economy, and even social system, and Japan was determined to resist foreign occupation. In fact, it was determined to do more than that. It wanted to compete with foreign occupation. Japan would resist the world powers taking over East Asia by becoming one of them. And Korea was right there. Korea 
which Japan thought, probably not without reason, would soon become a sphere of influence, just like the Chinese coastline in the Philippines and Southeast Asia. So, of course, in the 1870s, the newly modernizing and industrializing Japan wanted to get to Korea before anyone else did. They wanted that to be a Japanese sphere of influence, as opposed to a French, British, German, or American one. So in 1876, prior to Korea's declaration of empire, Japan arrived in Korea with a show of force and with a treaty, and Gojong, the king of Korea, assessed his options. He could sign this treaty with Japan, or he could deal with the considerable Japanese military that had just shown up at his doorstep. He signed the treaty. And this treaty didn't make Korea a colony or a territory of Japan. That is still decades away. Rather, it opened the formerly isolated peninsula to Japanese trade. Three Korean ports would become centers of Japanese commerce and influence, and Japanese citizens, while they were doing business in Korea, would enjoy extraterritoriality. That is, they would be subject to Japanese laws and enforcement even while they still walked and transacted on Korean soil. This arrangement with Korea is kind of a low-key sphere of influence area of Japan persisted for about 20 years. But in 1895, Gojong, the monarch who had signed that treaty, died, and there was a new power in town. Upon his death, Gojong's wife assumed a throne, and she had a very different outlook than her husband. Queen Min was much more wary of encroaching Japanese influence, and she was a much stronger advocate for industrialization, education, and what we would now call development for Korea. So, unlike her husband, who had signed a treaty and allowed Meiji Japan to come in, again, under duress, and it's understandable why he did that, Queen Min did everything she could to stand in the way of Japanese influence, much to the chagrin of Imperial Japan. One person who knew that she was a roadblock to continued Japanese influence and commercial exploitation of the peninsula, Miura Goro, the Japanese minister to Korea. And less than a year after Queen Min took the throne, Miura hatched a unsophisticated but effective plan to get rid of her. He quite simply had her killed. Miura ordered several of his thugs to break into the palace and kill the queen and many of her staff. Now, we can't know what Miura Goro thought would happen after he had the queen killed, but I think a lot of people in his position would probably expect some fallout, resistance, public outcry, anger, and backlash, which is exactly what happened. The assassination of the queen sent shockwaves through Korea, and there was a whole wave of anti-Japanese sentiment. Miura was recalled to Japan, put on trial, and he and, conveniently, every single one of his accomplices were found not guilty for reasons of insufficient evidence. But Korea suddenly found itself pushing back against the slow wave of Japanese encroachment, and this is where Korea declares itself to be an empire, which we talked about last episode. This is where Korea, for the first time in its history, declares itself to be truly equal with its neighbors. Queen Min was posthumously promoted to the Empress Myung Song. During her life, 
she was a regent. After her death, she became the first leader of a truly independent Korea. And for a decade after that, that's what Korea would be. Truly independent. Standing equal, at least on paper, to Japan, China, and every other sovereign country in the world. But Japan wasn't done yet. In 1905, Japan defeated Russia, and the Russo-Japanese War in a lot of popular histories of Japan is portrayed as Japan's kind of big coming-out party, stepping onto the world stage by beating up an established European power. But also what Japan did was defeat the other country that could hope to show up in Korea and get a coercive treaty out of it. Japan defeated the other neighboring power that could show up in Korea with a gun in one hand and a treaty in the other. A victorious Japan was once again encircling Korea, and I mean literally encircling. The Japanese Navy surrounded the Korean Peninsula, and Japanese soldiers landed in Seoul. They were accompanying diplomats, quote-unquote. This heavily armed Japanese delegation, which was really an invasion on all but name, strode into the capital, and it strode into the imperial palace, and pretty much threatened the Korean emperor at gunpoint to sign a new treaty. This treaty would be much more extreme than that 1876 agreement. This one would strip Korea of its sovereignty. Apparently, the Korean prime minister was in the imperial palace, in the room where this was happening, and while it was, he was screaming at the emperor not to sign. The leader of the Japanese delegation ordered the prime minister to be locked in an adjoining room and said that if the leader of the government kept screaming, he'd be killed. The emperor, with his prime minister locked away and with Japanese forces encircling his country, signed the treaty. After that, Japan would be responsible for Korea's foreign relations and Japanese interests would have first dibs on quote-unquote trade with Korea. Now, the Joseon dynasty and the Emperor Gojong, knew that this was a bad deal, and it had been extracted from them under duress. So the Emperor attempted to bring his case to the international community in 1907 at a peace conference in The Hague, where various world leaders were talking about lots of pressing issues affecting the world at the time, but to no avail. That international peace conference did not resolve the issues between Japan and Korea. Nor did it, by the way, resolve much else, because seven years later, World War I happened. So, way to go, 1907 diplomats at The Hague. You sure solved things. Later in 1907, the Japanese forces were kind of tired of dealing with the Emperor Gojong and forced him to abdicate. They put his son, who was younger and they thought would be more pliable, on the throne, and forced him to marry a Japanese woman, and gave him a Japanese title. With that, Korea's larger neighbor had one more way of controlling the peninsula. Three years later, in 1910, the last vestiges of Korean sovereignty were stripped away entirely. Japan showed up with yet another treaty, and this one was even worse for Korea. Now, in a moment of self-assertion, Sunjong, the new emperor who had been put on the throne by the Japanese, refused to sign. However, this time, it was the prime minister who put ink to paper. 
and the short treaty had eight articles about trade and property rights and the legal status of the Japanese in Korea, but it was the first article that was most important. It read, quote, His Majesty, the Emperor of Korea, makes a complete and permanent session to His Majesty, the Emperor of Japan, of all rights of sovereignty over the whole of Korea, unquote. The Korean Empire was gone. The peninsula was Japanese territory. On paper, Koreans and Japanese enjoyed the same equal status as subjects of the Japanese emperor. In practice, though, Koreans under Japanese rule were not allowed to organize into groups or publish any printed material. Also, Koreans were forced to take Japanese names. Several took names that sounded approximately like their real names, like Song Ki Chung becoming Song Ki Tai, and Japanese became the language of administration, of business, and power. Also, Japanese state Shinto became mandatory. The Korean peninsula was then, and today remains, religiously diverse. Buddhism, Confucianism, and Christianity are all common in Korea, as well as a local shamanic belief system known as Muism. And I feel like I'm not going to be able to do all of these different belief systems justice, but it's worth noting that they kind of overlap sometimes. You can acknowledge both Christianity and Confucianism and Muism, for instance. It is complicated. And I want to emphasize that the Japanese were not trying to necessarily convert people from one system to another. It was more of an and rather than an or. You could still worship at a Buddhist temple or in a Christian church, but you also had to worship at a Shinto shrine. And state Shinto is a bit different from the Shinto that you might have heard of or be familiar with. The Shinto of the Meiji Restoration isn't just the animistic religion that originated in Japan and in many ways is still around. This was one that put the Japanese emperor at the center of spiritual life. So Koreans were essentially required to worship the head of state of an occupying power. As for Korea's own imperial ambitions, the Japanese demolished most of the palace complex in Seoul. They built their own administrative offices right on top of the ruins. The buildings that had once symbolized Korean sovereignty were replaced by monuments to foreign power. Now, the Japanese did leave a small residential palace standing, though, and that is where Sunjong lived. The last Korean emperor lived in a reduced version of the imperial palace as a prisoner until his death in 1924. And after he died, the Japanese didn't even bother with putting a new puppet on the throne. As for ordinary Koreans, they had to deal with a foreign system that was suddenly stacked against them. Many landowners, for instance, only had traditional unwritten claims to their land. They owned it, they worked it, and they lived there because... That's where their parents had lived, and their parents had lived, and so on. But under Japanese rule, if they weren't able to produce written proof for their farms or homes or what have you, they weren't considered to be the real owners. That land was up for grabs. That is, it was subject to seizure by Japanese authorities. Also at this time, Japan has ambitions elsewhere, in Manchuria and in the Pacific, and Korean labor is helping fuel that war machine. Many Koreans were forced to work in Japanese factories, and later on, Korean women were forced into sexual slavery for the Japanese military. And to justify all of this, occupation, suppression, 
slavery, Japan formed something called the Korean History Compilation Committee, whose job was to create a history that would justify the present administration. And what they ended up doing was publishing a history of Korea that included a fictional kingdom called Mimana on the Korean peninsula that was a historical Japanese foothold prior to the Joseon Empire. The idea being that if Japan could invent an ancient Japanese presence on the Korean peninsula, that would justify the current Japanese presence on the Korean peninsula. Now, this is the first time in this story that an authoritarian government will try to shape history and change memory in order to justify itself, but it will not be the last. Today, modern North Korea structures itself and defines itself as, in theory, opposed to imperialism. In a lot of North Korean propaganda and rhetoric, they talk about threats from the outside world, and that propaganda about Japan, the United States, and South Korea, it is exaggerated, it is filled with inaccuracies, lies, and really, really just perplexing untruths a lot of the time. But it resonates. And one of the big reasons it resonates and remains effective is that Korea really did have a period of brutal and terrible occupation by a foreign imperial power at the beginning of the 20th century. There's that, and, kind of perversely, the North Korean regime learned a thing or two from the Japanese occupiers. Many of the tricks and the methods of justification and the methods of oppression that Japan used would end up getting duplicated by North Korea decades later. The native oppressive regime would just repackage and repurpose a lot of what the foreign repressive regime did. And there's another big reason why this period of history is so important to understanding modern North Korea. It helped shape the early career of the man who is still revered in North Korea as the eternal president, even though he's been dead for decades. There was a resistance to Japanese occupation. There were Koreans who fought back. One of them was Kim Il-sung. And we'll meet him, the father of North Korea, next week. Thank you to everybody who has filled out the listener survey. It is still going. Go to Facebook or Twitter to find it. It is a pinned tweet on my page right now. And let me know what you think. That is very helpful. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to do that thing. Thank you to everybody who helps keep this thing happening. Seriously, we couldn't do it without you. Also, again, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. On Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Please give me a like and a follow. And go on iTunes and give the podcast ratings and reviews. That helps other people discover it. I would really appreciate if you go and click all that stuff. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.